whenever we come to a healing story such as this, there's so much more in the story that we're not told than we are told, in a sense. We get told the bare details to make the point that the storyteller wants to make. But if you just cast your eye over that story or think back to the reading, we don't know what was the man's illness. He was ill. You know, we, we don't know his name. We don't know if he had family around him. There's so many things that we don't know. The story holds just enough information to make its point. And we could speculate and wonder about all those other things, but it might be more useful to hear what I think the story is trying to say to us. It reminds me of a story of, uh, I think it was Karl Barth, who was asked whether he thought the snake in Genesis had really spoken. You know, did the snake really speak? And he responded by saying, Madam, it is not a question as to whether the snake spoke or not. The question is, what did the snake say? So, (laughs) I thought it was clever anyway. Thank you, Jen. Yes, we'll, we'll have coffee later. Good, okay. This ill man certainly chooses an interesting way to seek his wholeness. He's sitting by a pool and... I think even the text indicates how unusual this strategy is because there's an insertion that explains why he's sitting by the pool. In fact, the earliest manuscripts didn't have the bit about waiting for the waters to be moved because an angel came down and stirred it and you had to race down and touch the water and if you got there first, you got healed, which explains why he was sitting there. So the first readers didn't have that information, so they heard the story and went... Why is he sitting there? And we might also, even with the information about the angel, say, what an interesting strategy for seeking your own healing. But I don't think it's for us to judge what may have seemed reasonable in times past because we also choose strategies that may be more or less effective when we're seeking our own wholeness and our own healing. I think most common in our community is we like financial healing, don't we? We think that if we've got enough money, whatever enough money might be, that we will be well, that we will be whole. And it's become an almost universal mantra in our culture, in our society. It's about the money. It's about the economy. It's about having enough, although enough is never actually defined. Money, of course, is power, and it's the power to uh, potentially persuade other people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do if you didn't have money. So you can hire them to do things, you can exchange goods or get goods that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get because you give money. Um, You know, it's numbers on a bank statement, it's these beautiful coloured plastic notes, but it's, it's really about power and the security within a fixed system and we have an economic system and we want to have power and security within that system. And uh, money can do a great deal of good. It can buy things for people in need and get you what you want in a difficult spot. Yet if it becomes as God to us, it becomes as empty as the debt that it actually represents because money represents debt. Money represents, when you hold a $5 bill, that's the government owes you five bucks and then you've got their marker. It's a debt, really. 
And if we make the debt the most important thing, we ourselves become like the debt, empty and not fulfilled. Some people think it's more in the area of career success that you can find wholeness and fulfilment. So study hard, get the job in the area that you're interested in, do your best there, and there's no doubt that you can make a valuable contribution to the world and the society if you use your gifts and explore something that you've got something to offer in. That's a great thing to do. But there's also, it's easy to find rivalries and insecurities that come into play in these situations. And look at politics, and I'm sure lots of politicians go into that sphere because they desire to serve, and then the system starts to form them or deform them, and all sorts of uh, less helpful things happen. If career becomes more about us, more about our identity and our security and our significance, then again it starts to go pear-shaped. If it's about what we have to offer and where we can offer it the most helpfully, that of course is much healthier. We do our work as an expression of who we are. Our work cannot tell us who we are. So, you know, again, we sometimes go for some really dodgy ways to find our wholeness and healing. Another one is family or relational fulfilment. Um, this is a lot closer to home and it's, it's true for many that home is a fantastic place and it should be. Relationships and family can be wonderful places to be nurtured and protected and brought up and all of that and that seems to be God's design so it's a good thing although it has to be said that not all relationships and not all families are nurturing and some are more so and some are less so. Many are so dysfunctional to as be abusive and that of course is a terrible situation. But even in the best of families, our family cannot tell us who we are or define our ultimate place in the world. It gives us a start. It can give us those early days, give us our legs as it were, but we've got to find out who we are and our place in the world. So there are all sorts of crazy strategies that we use. And when our strategy does not deliver, then all sorts of things can happen. Like this guy was sitting in that same spot for 38 years. Now there's people in the room who aren't 38 years old yet, I think. Maybe a couple at least. <laughs> Did he really think this was going to work? maybe for the first little while, what happens when your strategy doesn't deliver? Well, at first, I think we see people doing the thing that we think is the thing to do and we see that it seems to be delivering. So whether it's accumulating money or being successful in your career or having the wonderful relationship or family or whatever, we observe others and think, oh, they look pretty happy. That must be the way. It may not be a conscious decision, but it propels us. And uh, doubtless there were people getting healed in front of this guy. So he was clambering down whatever his ailment was, trying to get there, and someone else got there first and went, beauty, I'm healed, hallelujah, off I went. Off, off he went. And um, the guy's thinking, so the strategy works, it's just not quite working for me. And this is a terrible trap that we can get sucked into. We see other people seemingly getting their satisfaction but we're not getting ours. 
and we can start to lose faith in what we're doing. And we go through different stages. At first we will blame something. So it'll be because of that person or this situation or whatever else. If everything were just to come together right, then I would get my fulfilment. I would get my wholeness and my wellness and my whatever it is I'm looking for. It's just there's always one bit that's just out of place and, and we excuse it. If that goes on for 38 years, like it did with this guy, I think we suddenly, not suddenly, we gradually get to the point where we start putting two and two together and thinking, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. I don't think I'm ever going to be fulfilled. I'm ever going to be happy. I'm ever going to find that which I'm looking for. And at that point, we might begin to give up that there is any remedy at that point something can shift inside of us. The pain of disappointment can become so great that we ease it by giving up hope. It's an interesting thing. Giving up hope is actually a self-defence mechanism. It's because when you hope, you heighten the possibility of fulfilment and so the gap between where you are and the fulfilment becomes more intense. And so to ease that pain because we can't do anything about the fulfilment part, we, we ease the hope part and we become more cynical or jaded. We just don't expect as much. It's easier. It's less painful. I remember when I finished at Manly at the end of 2014 and uh, I went for a few job interviews in different places and I thought, I'm never going to find another church where I'd fit in. It's a really arrogant thing to say, foolish to the extreme. And, uh, and it's interesting, after you know, the third interview, and there were some really great churches around, it wasn't, wasn't anything about the churches being bad or anything, but I just knew they weren't the place for me. And uh, I almost got to the point of wanting to ease back on hoping, you know, making the backup strategies. I could pack shelves in the supermarket, couldn't I? You know, that kind of thing. It's difficult to keep hoping in the face of no sign of a way forward. So why did the guy stay at the pool? Why didn't he go off and do something else? Well, of course, we get held by the relative safety of the existing structure of our lives. I mean, he was surviving there. Somehow he was getting fed. Somehow he was protected from the elements. Somehow he had enough of a social network to still be able to respond to questions when somebody genuinely spoke to him. He wasn't completely you know, disastrous. And to mess with that was highly risky. And we know that too. You know, it may not be fulfilling, we may not be quite right, but at least I'm not dead. At least it's working well enough for the moment. And we, we get ourselves caught in a holding pattern not thriving, but at least surviving. Do you know people like that? Maybe in the quietness of your own heart we know that we're not thriving, we are at least surviving. Not a good life, but at least it was a life. And sometimes we are held simply by the duration of how we have survived. Well, for the last 38 years this has worked. Who am I to mess with a system that's worked for the last 38 years? It's very easy. 
Our strategy has not delivered the fullness of life but we are still breathing and it's challenging to move away from what we have become accustomed to and dependent upon. And then Jesus comes along and he asks a very simple question. Do you want to be well? And you could think, I've been sitting here for 38 years. What do you think I want? But Jesus understands the depth of the experience. Do you still want to be well? Or actually, are you happy where you are? Is really what's in that question. Do you want to make some moves, make some choices, shake it up and see what can happen? Or you're right. Questions are so helpful because they prompt us to interrogate ourselves. What do I really want? What is my desire here? Do I want to just sit here? Is that enough? Can I cope with that? Do I want to change? Do I have enough energy for that? What might it involve? Where could I end up? And so there is this threatening but hopeful call beyond the existing strategy. And the next step is most challenging. If we decide to persist in sitting where we know we are, we know our fate. And that's kind of secure in a way. There's no more surprises there. I've been here 38 years. I know how this works. I know how I'll probably die. That's kind of secure in its own settled way. If I decide to move, it means taking an option that was previously for me not an option. What does that mean? We can choose the challenge of the known or the challenge of the unknown and both are challenging because the challenge of the known usually has a full stop at the end of it. It's finite and in a sense it's dead. The challenge of the unknown, of course, is that it's unknown and that's much more difficult in some ways for us to cope with. They're both challenging. The known here offers the safety of being known and the certainty of failure. Sometimes we would rather the certainty of failure than the hope of success. It's just easier. The unknown is open and vulnerable and offers new hope and new fear. The hope, of course, is the hope beyond the life we currently have. The man who's sitting there for 38 years knows the life he has. Is he still hoping for a life beyond that? The man does respond to Jesus' call. He picks up his pallet. He gets up and he walks. And at that point for me, all sorts of questions come in which we don't know the answers to. Could he always have done that? Was it just some kind of psychosocial hold that had him held in that place or was there some kind of restoration to his actual physical body? We'll never know. The data is not there. Either one is a miracle because he got up whereas before that was not an option for him. He got up and picked up his pallet and walked straight into controversy. If you keep reading that passage, immediately... The people in authority go, what are you doing carrying your pallet? It's the Sabbath. (laughs) And of course he immediately goes, oh, it wasn't me. The guy who healed me told me to take it and it's his fault. And he, oh, look, I just got healed. As we do. It's 
So he picks up his camp bed and off he goes into the midst of controversy, into the midst of life. Is not life full of controversy? Undecided, mixed up things that aren't as safe as the certainty of kind of death. They're alive and they're fluid and they're engaging and we're nutting it out and we're working out what's going to go on. A life beyond the life he knew previously. He was now a theologian. Oh, well, I got healed on the Sabbath, so that means... (laughs) Albeit a beginning one. So as you sit here this morning, as you consider the strategies that you choose to seek your wholeness, to seek to be well as a person... Consider how well they're working for you. I mean, you might have it nailed. You might be really doing very well and that's great. And God bless you and give us a few clues if possible. Perhaps there is something staring you in the face to do that for some reason has been no option for you up to now. It's so obvious and yet you feel paralysed and cannot take that move. You may be held by the inertia of the known or the familiar, the safe. I encourage you to open your heart to listen to the voice of Jesus this morning. Jesus who will always call you into the fullness of life and that will always be out of the safety of the known. Safety of the known is like Groundhog Day where you keep repeating the things you know and Try and do it better and better and better. Jesus wants to call you into the deepest, fullest, most abundant, connected, eternal life. It's full of controversy. It's full of questions. It's full of engagement that draws things out of you that you didn't even know were there. And you discover things in other people that they didn't even know were there. And it gets deeper and richer and fuller and more alive and riskier and full of more hope and the potential of greater disappointment and you get connected to more people and it's not just your, your couple, it's not just your family, it's not just your congregation, it's not just your suburb or your city or your nation. It becomes larger and your heart gets larger. Listen to the call of Christ this morning. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you never took the safe option. You always took the life option. The life option that was so unsafe it led to your death, but a life that was so strong it was not held in check even by death. We want to follow you into eternal life. We confess we are fearful. We confess that the pain of disappointment is debilitating. And we confess there is nowhere else for us to turn. You have the words, the ways of eternal life. Open our hearts so we might hear your call even this day in the conversations we have with people here and this afternoon and tomorrow as we go into our week, that we might find you and hear your call into life and beckon others to come with us. 
to the glory of your name. Amen.